Uh, so we started this company that we called Kingdom Fina, uh, Fina, which was short for finance. All right. So Kingdom Fina. And basically what we did is he put in a couple hundred dollars. I put in a couple hundred dollars, I believe it was. And we paid to get a bunch of these little pamphlet books, just like the one he had gotten in his mailbox that explained to you how you could be a blessing to other people. If you bought in some of these books and sent them out to other people and they sent you money to buy some books and send them out to other people. And, and so what we did, was think about who all would want to make a kingdom impact. So basically, we got together every name and address from anybody that we knew was a Christian, anybody we'd ever been to church with in our whole lives, and we went, hey, listen about all these people. We printed the labels. We did the whole thing. Kingdom Fina, we're in. And man, we had big eyes and big dreams, and we're going to make all this money, and we're going to bless people, and we're probably going to bless ourselves a little bit as well. And, And so we're just excited about where this is going. We pour all this energy and effort to it, and then it's just the sit and wait game, right? It's okay. We sent them out. We know nobody's going to get it in the mail today and then immediately send it back overnight shipping because they just can't wait to get the books in the mail, right? And so it's going to take a few days. And so we waited a few days. We waited a couple weeks. It's been like 20 years. We're still waiting. Not a single response. We sent out hundreds of these books, literally hundreds of these books. We sent out into people's mailboxes and said, hey, please, please contribute to God's kingdom by being a moneymaker, by buying some of our books that we're going to sell you that we bought from these people, right? And, and be a part of this thing in, in modern day terminology, they call it a pyramid scheme, by the way. Didn't know that at the moment, but I do now. And, and here's the whole point of me sharing that with you is this. You see that I kind of droop my head when I say... I didn't know that in the moment. I wasn't thinking very clearly in the moment because in the moment when we were jumping into it, it was absolutely exciting. We were on the cutting edge of something cool that was about to happen. We were going to fund some ministry. We were going to do some cool stuff. I might get a sound system in my car so that people could feel the thump when I drove up. Right? These are the kind of things that we were thinking. We were pumped in that moment. But, but fast forward just a few weeks and a few months and now 20 years. And when I think about that moment, all I think about that moment with is regret. That awesome, energetic, high-intensity, here-we-go, hoorah beginning was completely ruined by a lack of response. And by the way, that ended now, as an adult, I can say this, even though it cost me money, I'm kind of glad that it was ruined. (laughs) I needed to wake up a little bit and see things a little more clearly. Right, but this, this awesome moment of I'm fixing to do it, it's fixing to happen, it was completely torn to shreds by the way that the story ended. You know this reality from your life, right? That great beginnings are often spoiled when they lead to bad endings. <laughs> Remember the job that you took because the hours were better and the pay was going to be better, and then after you got into the job like three months, the last thing in the world you wanted to do was work at that job anymore? You meant, uh, Whoa, <laughs> we got some people in here. <laughs> okay, then. I didn't know that was going to be the point today. Somebody said, hey, man, all right? Right? Several of us are going, yeah, I know, because then we found out that the boss was a little bit more demanding than we thought. We found out there were stipulations on some of that commission that we didn't know about or whatever it was. And all of a sudden, the thing that we jumped into wholeheartedly excited about, we went for it. We were so pumped. The way that it ended made us look back on it and go, man, wish I'd never even taken that job. Some of us in the room, you don't have to raise your hands. It's okay, especially not if you're speaking of your spouse when you raise your hand. Some of us in the room today would go, wish I'd never gone on that date, right? Anybody in the room that would say that, I bet? Yeah. Right? If you're thinking about your spouse, again, keep it to yourself. Okay? It's Christmas for crying out loud. Scrooge. Right? But have you jumped into something only to realize, hey, it's not, and it's even worse, right, when it's not business, when it's not a job offer, when it's not a new hobby or exercise, which can be hard, but when it's relational, when it's someone offers you friendship, 
and you're pumped about this new friendship, and then you find out somewhere down the road that their intentions have gone askew, and you're no longer in that relationship with them anymore. When somebody says, hey, I want to pour into your life and invest in you and mentor you, and then they disappear or ulterior motives are found. It hurts, doesn't it? In some way or another, unfortunately, it's likely true that every single one of us in the room probably know the experience. We at least know the feeling of of feeling like someone communicated love to us and then that person disappearing. See, it doesn't matter how sweet it is at the beginning if the rest of the story goes wrong. (laughs) Broken endings rob meaning from beautiful beginnings. Broken endings rob meaning from beautiful beginnings. And so today, as we take just a few moments, right, just to, to consider what it is that we're celebrating at Christmas, we're celebrating the beginning of Jesus's earthly life. What a rich thing to celebrate. And yet, and still, if that's all he did was come, if the ending of the story didn't bear to witness the beginning of the story and its purpose and why he came, then that coming is really not something for us to be super excited about. If we only believe, as many people do, that Jesus was just a great teacher or maybe a really good prophet or maybe a holy man of some kind, but not the Son of God, not the Savior, if that's all we can get to, then His coming really doesn't matter for our lives ultimately. And so today I want us to take our attentions and our focus for just a few moments to what might be an odd passage for Christmas and Advent, and that's okay. As we consider why we celebrate the beginning of Jesus' earthly life, I want us to look to the very ending of Jesus' earthly life. And what we're going to see there, spoiler alert, is love. We're going to see him there showing the real kind of love, the love that I hope you're getting used to hearing me talk about around here. Right? I hope that we never grow tired of hearing about it. It's not the kind of love that's just butterflies and excitement and emotions and feeling. That kind is super cool. <laughs> Like that kind, love it. Sometimes my wife looks at me and bats her eyes just right. I'm like, yeah, girl, right? She's pretty and she likes me, right? That part's neat, but that's empty if there's not the the true love, the deep love, the lasting love. Love, biblically, I believe, is the radical commitment to the advancement and well-being of another. Love is, I'm here no matter what, and I'm here for as long as it takes, and I am availing my life, leveraging my life, giving my energy, giving my resources to love you. Not until you fill in the blank, but I'm here forever to love and care for you. We're going to see in Jesus' life, I pray, that at the end of his life, even near the, the very absolute end of his earthly life, he's still displaying love to ill-deserving people. We're going to look at Luke chapter 23. We'll start in just a moment in verse 39. Kind of setting up the passage is really easy this week. Jesus has been Jesus. He's done three years of earthly ministry. He's done miracles. He's preached authoritatively. He's walked on water. He's done all kinds of crazy things. People have flocked to him. Many have sang his praises and awaited his coming and pressed in to get near to him. And then many of those have now turned and are against him and hate him and cried for him to be killed. They've cheered out and chanted out, crucify him. And so he is now being crucified. In the verses that we pick up in today, Jesus, little baby Jesus that came in the manger has grown to be a man and he is nailed to a cross. Just let that sit in for a second because 
we talk about it, especially in the Bible Belt South, and it becomes so commonplace that it's almost not very impactful. Jesus has long spikes driven through his flesh and through his nerves, through the back and into a piece of wood, and that's happening for him. He's on a cross naked. He's on a cross for nothing that he's done guilty, as we'll see today, reminded to us. He's there. That's where he is. And people are insulting him. The religious leaders are yelling insults at him. And they're saying, you're not really who you say you are. If you're really such a big man, do something about this situation. The Roman soldiers who are the ones to have crucified him, they're doing the same thing. They're, they're taunting him and mocking him. They make a sign even that says the king of the Jews and they've put it over his head. Not because they believe he's the king of the Jews, but they're making fun of what he said about himself. And they're saying, this is what your king looks like, Jews. He looks naked, broken, destitute, and nailed to a cross. You got these people mocking him. You got people spitting towards him. Jesus is on the cross. Heavy stuff for Christmas, but I promise you, if you'll stick in through the heavy, you'll get to experience the joy. Picking up in verse 39, we're told this. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Then save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong wrong. So we're told that Jesus has one criminal on one side of him, one criminal on the other. Verses 32 and 33 up above us told us that there were two criminals that he was crucified alongside of. It's not proven, but very possible, I believe, that the middle cross was originally going to be for Barabbas, who that the crowd chanted and said, let Barabbas, this horrible criminal, go and let's put Jesus on the cross. They're crucified there together. And in our passage today, we just read, they're called criminals. But it's important, I think, that we understand that these are not just just white-collar criminals, right? These are not just folks who did a little whoopsie, okay? The the verses in Matthew that tell the same story can actually make it a little more confusing. The, The English word translated there is just robbers. It says, hey, there were two robbers there by him, but make no doubt about it, in the original language, that word was not translated to just simple, petty, thievery robbers like we think, These were plunderers. These were people who came with intention to take and do violence to all in their path when they did. These were people who beat their way into people's house and beat people into submission to take whatever they wanted and oftentimes killed or or raped or or whatever. They they planned to leave a wake of destruction behind them. That's robbers in Matthew. These are the criminals that are here. This crucifixion was not one that was for people who, like I did when I was a youngster, happened to steal one piece of bubble yum from the drugstore. <laughs> you didn't wind up on a cross because you had broken the speed limit, right? These are people who had done heinous, clearly ridiculous, clearly offensive things to other people. And there's two of them, one hanging on each side of Jesus. And here's Jesus, perfectly pure, hanging in the middle. And what we just read in verse 39 is that one of these criminals railed at him. We don't use that word railed often, at least I don't. I don't know, maybe Bulldog fans do, right? I don't know, but like, we don't say, hey, rail them, rail them, right? That's not what we say. To to rail someone is to incessantly shout insults. It's to intentionally 
perpetually pick somebody apart with your words, to make them feel small on purpose, to mock them, ridicule them on purpose. You want to demean them and make them feel as small as possible. And one of the guys who has earned for himself this most torturous, painful, shameful of deaths is there because of his own deeds we just read, because of what he's done. And in the place of his guilt, he's yelling out at Jesus and he's mocking him. And he's ridiculing him. And he's trying to break him down. It's ugly, isn't it, to think about that. Think about that guy doing that. But what if it wasn't just that guy? What if it was more than one guy? We just read here that one criminal railed against Jesus, that the other one spoke to him and tried to tone it back and, and correct him. But listen, Matthew, Mark, and John also talk about this moment in Jesus' life. John is not that helpful in regards to this specific moment because it just tells us that the two criminals were crucified with him. That's all John really has to say about it. But if you look at Matthew and you look at Mark, you see something interesting. Matthew twenty-seven forty-four says, And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Pick that up. Robbers is plural. It says these two guys that were crucified with him, they reviled him in the same way as the Pharisees and the soldiers. They reviled him, both of them, says Matthew. Mark 15, 32 says those who were crucified with him, talking about the same two guys, they also reviled him. So you got Matthew and you got Mark saying, hey, there were two guys crucified, rightfully so, next to Jesus by the law at least. They're, they're crucified next to Jesus, and these two guys are yelling insults at Jesus nonstop. And yet, you got Luke saying, hey, wait, there was one guy yelling insults at Jesus, and there was one guy correcting him. Listen, God's word is always true in everything that it says. Now, it's, it's got some, some paradoxes in it, some things that are hard for us to comprehend how A and B can both be true and flow together. Some of them we can work hard and, and seek God's leadership and come to understand. Other ones we may not ever fully grasp. There are some things... They're hard to grasp how they fit together, but there are no contradictions. There are no places where if it says this, then it means this can't be true, and it says this too. Right? There's none of that. I think what's happening here is if God's word is always true, and it is, and if Matthew and Mark say that two criminals reviled Jesus, then they did. That happened because the Bible says that it did. And if Luke says that one criminal reviled him and one defended him, then it must mean that that also happened. Here's what I want you to see. At the very absolute end of one of these savage criminals lives he had been next to jesus throughout this whole crucifixion process and somehow in watching the meekness and the humility of jesus and the love of jesus he was changed from a hater into a defender do you see the grace of Jesus that somebody who's on the cross right next to him has been yelling insults right along with his friend and cohort here on the other side? He's been yelling insults. He's been saying all this stuff, and maybe eventually his yelling starts to slow down. He's not saying as much, and then maybe eventually he goes silent, and then all of a sudden he's not just listening anymore. He's not just failing to put out insult anymore. Now he's saying to the other guy, hey, stop. Stop. Because I've seen enough of his love for it to impact what I believe about him. I trust in who he is because I have seen his love. Whoa. 
What an incredibly beautiful picture of the long-suffering, long-standing power of the love of Jesus. Listen, does Jesus love you enough to come and be a toddler and have to figure out potty training and be really frustrated, I'm sure, at times in his brain with his mom when he can't say the words to her, but he obviously knows exactly what he wants because he's God, and she can't quite figure it out. She's like, do you want the binky? And he's like, no, I don't want the binky, right? He probably didn't do it like that. That's how I would have done it, right? He was probably more like, Mother, one day you'll see that it was not the binky that I preferred. That's probably what toddler Jesus was thinking, right? He loved you enough to come and do all that. Have you ever cut your skin on something and it hurt hard? Have you ever walked around with no shoes on and wish you would have? Jesus walked around with sandals on all the time in environments that were tough and rugged. I'm sure that there were moments where he was going, man, this is not fun. There are blisters. There are cuts. There's chafing. There's stuff going on. It's not comfortable. He loves you enough that he chose all of that. But listen, none of that impacts your forever soul, eternity, destination. None of that gives you joy for everyday living unless he loved you enough to love you all the way to the end. And he did. And if you ever had a reason to wonder about it, this story should really help you a whole lot because there's a guy right there. There's a guy right there who has railed against him more than you have. He took it up to the very end of his life. Took it up to the very last moment even of Jesus' life. And he pushed against him. And he was hatred just spewing out of him towards Jesus And this guy's going, wait a minute, I'm seeing that this is different than I thought. Have you seen in the life of Jesus, have you seen in his care for you such a love that it actually causes you to believe more and more in who he is? That's what this guy on the cross has seen. We're going to see that it doesn't just change him from being a, a hater of Jesus into a defender of Jesus, but that it actually leads him even farther into being one that would hope in Jesus. We're going to see Jesus' love extend even farther in the way that Jesus answers that hope. Last couple of verses. Verse 42. He, being the criminal that had defended Jesus to the other criminal, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. just want you to see and to realize and to think about fresh and new everything that we are so inclined to think that we must have to be accepted by Jesus. Everything that we think must be true in our souls and in our lives for God to be pleased with us. And look at how few of those things this guy at the cross even has any chance to have. His moral track record. Has he done good and been good to other people? Nope. He's done so poorly that he's naked and hanging on a cross. And guess what? He can't get down and go change it. He can't offer somebody a mint from the cross to even try to do one small goodism. He doesn't have any life left to do anything to put on a track record. It's done and over in terms of his good morality. And yet his faith in this beautiful, rich love of Jesus causes them to go, hey, can I, can I be where you are? Because I know that there's something, I know that you have a kingdom. I know, can I be where you are when this is all said and done? He doesn't have the moral record. He doesn't have religious performance. 
If he'd been one of the religious elite, if he'd been one who could stack up his religious works against those of others, he would have been one in the crowd crying out, crucify Jesus, instead of being crucified next to him. He doesn't have that. He doesn't have life success. He hasn't achieved to be one of the the known and have a lot of clout and be followed and people respect him. He's on the cover of magazines. He's not that guy. (laughs) And here's the reality that I hope you take away today, if you take nothing else with you, is that in Jesus' coming, something better be true to you in your life. It's this. It's that all of these things that you don't have to have for Jesus to set his affection on you when you put your trust in him, those are still not the things that hold his affections on you even now today. I'm not encouraging you to go and and, and live a life that doesn't care about good works. The Bible would tell us that that's a life that's not true faith. That nobody's lifting up this criminal and going, hey, be like him. Do it wrong the whole time and then hope you say something to Jesus right as you're about to die. Nobody's lifting this up as the example. But what I want you to see is that your moral record is not the thing that secures Christ for you. And so some of us need to hear today, the baby that approached you and came to you because he loves you is the same Savior who lives today. And he approaches you in spite of your lack of moral record. He loves you. You're going, yeah, but... but I grew up my whole life hearing about Jesus and, and knowing what I was supposed to think about God, and I've, I've done almost nothing with that. But he loves you. And listen, I want to make sure you hear this, church. I'm not saying these things for the sake of people who don't know Jesus only. I, if you're here today, you don't know Jesus, I hope you hear this. But listen, we need to know this as followers of Jesus. Because here's what happens in my life, and I know it happens in your life because you're human and the Bible's true, is that we trust in the gospel and we trust that it's Jesus' grace that saves us. But in the moments when we stray what we deem, quote-unquote, far enough, no longer could he possibly be radically committed to my advancement and well-being. No longer could I fully, wholeheartedly trust that this perfect God really loves me. I've sinned too much, and so I can't come near to God right now to talk to him. I'll try to do really good for a couple of weeks. Then I'll come back and talk to him. Faith in the grace of the Jesus who hangs on the cross and says yes to the thief that was just screaming insults at him. Faith in that kind of Jesus won't allow you to wait until you've tried to prove your morality before you come close to share life with him. Faith in that kind of Jesus will go, I was a wretch yesterday, and here I come right now because you're the one who loves me. You're the one who offers me hope instead of what I deserve. Today, my hope is that you know that Jesus loves you enough that he willingly, gladly left perfection where angels sang his name and bowed down regularly. He left that on purpose, willingly, gladly, to do the Father's will. The scriptures tell us that he did it with joy set before him, knowing the pain and all the stuff of life and then the crucifixion. He did that with joy in his heart going, it's going to be painful and it's going to hurt and it's going to be distressing and I'm going to have a moment even where I go, God, is this the only way? But at the end of the day, the thing that wins out, the thing that lives most deeply in me is joy in setting these captives free. Jesus came with that heart of love for you. And there was never, not once, a moment in his pre-earthly life or in his earthly life or now in his resurrected life where he's done anything but prove that over and over and over and over again. 
when I was 17, I, I had a pretty decent wreck. And more or less, they left the decision to us, but I more or less totaled a two-year-old Chevrolet Camaro in a thicket of pine trees. And at that point, my dad, who I love and who's probably at home watching now, hope you're feeling better, dad. He and I didn't necessarily have the best of relationships. And I'd given him a lot of reasons for that to be true. I'd been a deceiver. He tells the story to people sometimes. Helps me be a better dad. Says, you know, Jason, if he called and said, hey, uh, is it okay if I run past McDonald's? You had to say, which McDonald's? Right, because Jason would say, can I go to McDonald's trying to act like he's going to the one right over here seven minutes from the house. He's talking about one in Tennessee to meet a girl that he met on the phone. Right? I would do these kinds of things from time to time. I would boldface lie sometimes about my schoolwork. I would take blessings that I had been given that he worked hard for. My dad's such a hard worker that he worked so hard for to give me, and I would just act like they didn't matter at all and didn't care and didn't take care of them. I would waste what he had given me over and over and over and over and over again. And I remember the second thing I thought after I wrecked this car into this pine ticket, the first one was, God, thank you that I'm alive. And I'll always wear my seatbelt. The second thing I thought was, my dad's going to kill me. (laughs) Retrospectively, I'm thinking now, it's kind of like, God, thank you so much for saving me for these last few minutes before my dad kills me. Right? I'm like, he is going to absolutely lose it. Coincidentally, just side note, big bad storm. I wasn't even speeding. I wasn't driving badly. The car just hydroplane. Thank goodness a witness stopped and and shared that information. But I just remember thinking, he's going to get out of the car, and it's not going to really matter. Like He's not going to need to hear the story about what did or didn't happen. He's going to look and see this car looks like a tin can crushed up in this this pack of trees, and it's going to be over, right? Like much more embarrassment in what's about to happen on the side of the road with me and my dad than the fact that I just wrecked my car and cars are driving by, right? Like, can I hide in the pine ticket? I'll never forget it. It felt like it was only seven or eight minutes. I'm sure it was longer than that, but it felt like it was just so soon after... I'd had the wreck, and I'd gotten out of the car. I was kind of getting my sea legs back under me a little bit. My mom had pulled up just a minute or two before. I'll never forget my dad pulling up in his little GMC Sonoma and getting out of the side of that truck. And he didn't run because I, I, I just don't think, like, he just couldn't let, the machismo just couldn't let him run. But he walked as briskly as I've ever seen that man walk in my lifetime. And I'm thinking, man, he looks a whole lot like a general who's about to lower the boom on somebody. He's walking real precisely and intentional with his steps. And he walked up to me, and he looked at me with big pockets of water under his eyes. And he hugged me so tight, and he said, I'm so glad you're okay. I love you, boy. We talked later about what happened. For whatever reason, though I'd given him reason not to, he trusted me. There was never any contention about it. There was never any shame about it. There was never any anything about it except him loving me. He looked at me that very night and said, aren't you supposed to go somewhere tonight? And I was like, well, yeah, but my car's in the shop. He said, I know you're taking my truck. What? See, this guy that I thought I had pushed just to the absolute edges of his limits, like I've, I've really pushed far. Surely I'm going to break him eventually, and it's going to end. That guy loved me in that moment that I least expected love, and he's loved me every day since then. I'm an adult. He pays for me to go on free family vacations. Then he calls and apologizes to me about how much travel there's going to be. 
offers to give me gas money in a hotel on the way there if we want to break up the drive. Like, you're apologizing to me for bringing me on vacation? This is weird. (laughs) I've never had a moment in my life where something went wrong with a house, something breaking, a car, something breaking, a kid being sick, where something went wrong in my life and my dad found out about it that he didn't quickly call me and say, you let me know what I can do to help you. You see, he loves me. (laughs) He loves me, and I have given him moments to be frustrated. I'm sure he probably lost a hair or two on my behalf at some point in his life. I bet he threw some things, right? I saw him dismantle a lawnmower in the backyard one time, and I bet it had more to do with me than it did the lawnmower. But he loves me to the very end. It's who he is. It's what he does. That's his heartbeat. And I'm here to say to you, Merry Christmas is more than just a nice, cute little jingle that we say to to say thank you and happy holidays to somebody. Merry Christmas means there is reason for extraordinary bright gladness in your life because the Heavenly Father loves you to the very last of his being. And he has sent his son to show you expressly that. Scripture says that we have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That we want to know how God loves us, look at what Jesus has done. That's how God loves you. So I say to you today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't leave this place not knowing for sure that you've put your trust in Jesus. You might have done a lot of action and a lot of stuff, but you've never truly loved him because you've never really grasped and accepted that he loves you. Don't leave here and do nothing about that today. And if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, I would say really simply and hopefully deeply impactfully, Jesus has come and he is going to come again. Merry Christmas. The band's going to play. We're going to have time to respond as we sing. Pray with me. God, I pray that you would capture our hearts up and that you would start with me. God, with a prevailing memory of what we've heard about your love today, that we would see you as more than the cute baby in a feeding trough. But that we would see you as the victorious warrior king who fought through humility and sacrifice to give us hope and freedom and joy and peace because you are radically committed to our advancement and well-being. Let us not lose sight of that today and tomorrow and the day after and the day after. I pray that our Christmas would be different because we would have our hearts set upon you. Jesus, thank you so much for your love for us. So ill-deserved by me, by us. Thank you. We want to worship you with our lives this Christmas. Lead us in how we can do that, and I pray that you would let our hearts be full of joy as we do. I ask it for your name. Amen.